Well, uh, for this last several weeks, if you've been with us, we've been studying uh, this section of Exodus. It talks about the tabernacle in the Old Testament. And uh, we always, at Christ Church, we look at an Old Testament book during the fall months uh, leading up to Christmas. And so for the last three years, we've been taking Exodus in chunks. And I realized uh, that last year we skipped this passage in Exodus 23 about the Israelites' invasion of the promised land where God commands his people to drive out the nations in the promised land and in some of the cities to kill every living thing in them. It's a challenging topic, actually. The reason we skipped it, my my dad was sick. My dad went to be with the Lord this last year, and I just didn't have the emotional capacity to take on this passage at that, that time. And I just remembered a few weeks ago that we'd skipped that and we didn't put it into the schedule for this year. And I feel really strongly that this, this is a passage and a topic that we need to talk about as a church. I've recently known several people who have lost confidence in the Bible. And if you ask them, you know, what happened? Why do you not think the Bible is the Word of God? They think the Bible is a cultural product. Or the Bible is not true. Is The first thing they'll say I can't believe that God would have all those people killed in Canaan. This is the first thing that they list. And it's interesting, you know, because I think 100 years ago, if you, uh, if you ask someone who'd lost their confidence in the Bible, why'd they lose confidence in the Bible? They say, well, you know, I'm a scientific person. And I, I, the Bible has all those miracles in it. I just can't believe in all the miracles in the Bible. But, you know, I still do believe in the morality of the Bible. That's all changed now. Now most people would say miracles in the Bible, I don't know if they can happen. They probably didn't happen. My real problem with the Bible is the socially regressive immorality of the Bible and its teaching about women and slaves and sex and other religions and especially the genocide in Canaan. And that's why I could never believe in the Bible. It's because of this passage, passage like this one. So, for example, Richard Dawkins, uh, he's a famous atheist and opponent of Christianity in his book, The God Delusion. This is how he describes the conquest of, of Canaan. The ethnic cleansing begun in the time of Moses is brought to bloody fruition in the book of Joshua, a text remarkable for the bloodthirsty massacres it records and the xenophobic relish with which it does so. The Bible story of Joshua's destruction of Jericho and the invasion of the promised land in general is morally indistinguishable from Hitler's invasion of Poland or Saddam Hussein's massacres of the Kurds and uh, the Marsh Arabs. The, the Bible may be an arresting and poetic work of fiction, but it is not the sort of book you should give your children to form their morals. The criticism is precisely the morality of the Bible. And I'll tell you, this is not a small issue. I would say this topic, if I was to say the biggest doubt that I've personally struggled with in my Christian life is this topic right here. And of course, the Lord has been gracious. He's taught me over the years. He's still teaching me. I don't have all the answers about this passage. But um, I think it's one that's absolutely crucial for us as God's people to face honestly and so I want to share with you, this is what I've learned in my journey and through studying and preparing for this. And so we're going to reflect on the conquest of Canaan this morning by uh, looking at two simple questions. First of all, was this an ethnic cleansing? Was the conquest of Canaan an ethnic cleansing? And second, how then can we understand it? 
Was it an ethnic cleansing, and how then can we understand? I got a lot to say about each of those questions. Before I jump into those two questions, I want to say one thing about how you approach doubt as a Christian. Um, you know, the book of Jude tells the church that we should have mercy on those who doubt. And as a church, we believe that the Bible is God's word to us. God does not lie. And because we trust God, that's why we trust his word. But the God of the Bible is not only true, he is also good and beautiful. Truth, goodness, and beauty, they all go together. And so as a church, we are a collection of people who believe that God's worth is true with our minds, but we're growing in our understanding of its goodness and beauty. We should expect that if the Bible is really the word of God, it will say things that offend us. It should be our expectation. The Bible is going to say things you say, how dare God say that? I would not, I would not believe in a God like that. If it doesn't say something like that, then the Bible is already exactly like you are right now. It's no different than you. It has to challenge us. And so all of us experience a gap between what we know is true in our minds and what we have experienced to be good and beautiful in our hearts and souls. And so we're all growing so that we want to get to a place where every page of the Bible we can sing God's praises about it. And our hearts sing when we read it and we say, I believe that he is so good. We're on a journey to get there. And, uh, and I'll tell you, after 20 years of studying the Bible, I can tell you the gap can get smaller. And so we come to a topic like this not saying to God that we are his judges and will decide whether he's moral enough, enough for us. We cannot stand about God as the moral ones. We know that we, we're not in a position to do that. No, we come saying, Lord, we trust you. We want to understand your word. Teach us. And when we come with that posture, he always does teach us. And so this morning we're going to look at two important questions. This is the first. Was the conquest of Canaan an ethnic cleansing? And I'll tell you, this is a hard question. I, I've been working on this sermon for several weeks. Actually, I started it last year. And uh, up until yesterday afternoon, my answer to that question was no, it's not an ethnic cleansing. And the main reason being that I thought of ethnic cleansing as basically a genocide based on race. One racial group kills off another racial group because of their, their race. But as I looked into the definition of an ethnic cleansing, I found that it's broader than that. First of all, ethnicity is not simply about race. It's about a people's culture and about their religion. This is absolutely about a judgment of a cultures and religions. Also, the United Nations defines ethnic cleansing this way. A purposeful policy designed by one ethnic or religious group to remove by violence and terror-inspiring means the civilian population of another ethnic or religious group from certain geographic areas. And so when you read that definition, you say, is this an ethnic cleansing? I think if we're honest, we have to say, yes, it is. But with two crucial and emphatic qualifiers. And this is what they are. I want to talk about these two qualifiers. The first is, that the conquest of Canaan was based uh, not on race, but it was based on morality. And second, that God is the primary actor. God is the primary actor. So I want to talk carefully about each of these two qualifiers. So first, the conquest of Canaan was not based on race, but morality. And you can see that these are ethnic groups that God says to destroy in verse 23. 
When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out. God intends to blot out these people groups, and it is either by killing them or removing them from the land. But what we see over and over clarified in the Old Testament is that God's judgment is never against someone because of their race, but because they have worshipped certain gods, and those gods are so wicked that they have turned the people into violently wicked people. And you see this here. Immediately after he lists these nations, he gives his rationale in verse 24. You shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. The problem is these people's worship and the things that it has caused them to do. This is not a racial judgment. This is a moral judgment. Now, some of you may think that, you know, the God of the Bible judges and destroys people for little rule-breaking, you know, like watching R-rated movies or saying bad words. And, you know, people think of Christians that way. That, oh, their God's going to send people to hell for breaking all these little petty rules. And uh, we need to feel the weight of the wickedness of the cultures in this passage. This is not religious intolerance. I mean, God tolerates all kinds of religions in his creation. For millennia, he tolerates all kinds of religions. This is a people who were sacrificing their children to their bloodthirsty gods. I mean, I want you to imagine this is a regular part of a culture. Little children being brought to a temple, their th throats being slit, their blood being offered to gods. This people are, are brutally violent. They're mass incest, mass sexual abuse that was totally tolerated and encouraged in this, in this culture. And they are hard-hearted and they don't want to change. It would be unlike anything that you've ever seen or experienced in your life. And then you add to that that even with how terrible uh, these uh, wicked cultures were, it takes the Lord 430 years to get to the point where he says that these people need to be judged. That's what it took. They were like this for 430 years. And, and, and finally, he says, the earth itself is crying out against them. And by the way, you know, what we find out later in the Bible is God says to these, you know, the Israelites, you know, I'm going to remove these Canaanites because of their wickedness, and then you're going to go live in there. And if you do the same things, it's not like you're so special. I am impartial. I, you will also be thrown out of the land. And they're thrown out of the land. Guess how long it takes for them to get thrown out of the land? From the apostasy of Solomon to the fall of Jerusalem in 586 is about 400 years. Of idol worship, God is slow to anger. It takes him centuries to get angry. And all this tells us this was not a race, racist genocide by the Israelites. This was a divine judgment. And these are two very different things. And of course, with divine judgment comes the opportunity for repentance. God does not delight in judging people. He wants them to turn to him. You know, if you look, go read the story of Jonah, Jonah is a prophet who goes to Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. The Assyrians were brutally violent people. And God says, all right, that's it. I'm going to destroy Nineveh. I'm going to judge these people. And, and uh, the, the Ninevites hear about it, and they say, we were wrong. We repent. And the Lord says what? Okay, I won't judge you. 
And, no, and Jonah is like, what? I just went and told them you were going to destroy them, and you're not going to destroy them? And he's like, no, why wouldn't I have compassion on these people? And they're turning to me, and they want to change. And just like that, I mean, he's so soft-hearted. He's just like, what? He, you know, he's such a softy and turns to them. And it's fascinating. If you go uh, to the book of Joshua, which recounts the actual conquest of Canaan, do you know what basically the first thing that happens in the book of Joshua is? There's a Canaanite prostitute who hears about the Israelites. She heard about what happened in Egypt. She's like, I heard about the 10 plagues. I heard about the Red Sea and how Pharaoh and all his soldiers were destroyed. I want to be on your team. And she helps these spies that come in. And she repents. And what happens? She's spared. Um, her, and her whole family. Everyone had that opportunity. And actually, Joshua makes it clear that messengers had gone throughout the Canaanite lands and told them about what happened in Egypt. They knew about this and to turn from their violent ways and turn to the Lord. What ethnic cleansing have you ever heard of had something like that? It took 400 years for God to get that angry. And then there's an open offer to everyone to kind of turn from their violence and their wickedness and to repent. What all this says is there's not an ounce of racism driving this judgment. The Lord cares about the heart. The Lord cares about what gods we worship and how those gods cause us to treat our neighbors. He's not partial to a certain race or to the wealthy or to the educated or the civilized or even to the religious. He doesn't care who your family is or the color of your skin or how important you think you are. He judges the heart. So first, the conquest of Canaan was a moral judgment, not an act of racism. But still, you could say, well, you know, this is always how an ethnic cleansing or genocide gets rationalized. One group thinks the other group is dirty and immoral and less than human, and they probably think that they are divinely sanctioned to exterminate them. Theoretically, couldn't anyone say, God told me to go kill all those wicked people? Well, that's our second qualifier. It's not only is a moral judgment, not a racist act, but second, in the conquest of Canaan, God was the primary actor. And actually, I think if you read the UN definition of an ethnic cleansing, this is the main difference. Let me read it to you again. An ethnic cleansing is a purposeful policy designed by one ethnic or religious group to remove by violent and terror-inspiring means the civilian population of another ethnic or religious group from certain geographic areas. The conquest of Canaan was not designed by the Israelites. This passage is explicit that the conquest of Canaan was an act of God. Look at the end of verse 23. The Lord says, I blot them out. Verse 27, I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs on you. And I will set hornets before you, which shall uh, drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you increase and possess the land. Who is doing this conquest? The Israelites? No. The Lord says, I am doing this. Which, by the way, you know, it's important because some of you, even the fact that we say, how do we take something that's an ethnic cleansing that most of us would say is the greatest evil that is done by humans on this planet, and then to associate something so evil with the God that we love? 
How is that not deeply troubling? But that's precisely the point. The greatest evils that humans do is when they put themselves in the place of God and they do things that God alone is supposed to be doing. This is an act that God alone can do. This is an act that God alone has the prerogative to do. The Bible is clear that vengeance belongs to the Lord. It is not evil for God to judge. It is very evil for us to act like we are God. And the only way a judgment like this was sanctioned was by God's special revelation and approval and by his miraculous action. You know, you think about how the Egyptians were judged. How were they judged? Ten plagues <laughs> that were miraculous. The Israelites didn't do that. How was Pharaoh killed and all his soldiers? And God parts the Red Sea so his whole nation can walk through. And then he closes the Red Sea on all, all of his enemies. It was clearly not the Israelites who did that. Do you know how the conquest of Canaan started? The Israelites, God says to the Israelites, I want you to walk seven times around the city and blow some trumpets. And then the walls started tumbling down. It was clear that the Lord was doing it, not the Israelites. And if you think of the tragic ethnic cleansings or genocides that we know about from the past century, whether the Holocaust or genocides in Rwanda or Cambodia or the Balkans, how many of them began with a miraculous rescue of a nation of slaves passing through the Red Sea so that all the surrounding nations hear about it? How many of those ethnic cleansings, the, the people doing it said, you know, let's give them 400 years. You know, let's, let's not rush this. 400 years, maybe we'll rethink this. How many began with the miraculous toppling of a city? How many had opportunities for people to turn from their violence and sexual abuse and wickedness and have their lives forgiven and changed? None of them. This is something radically different that we are reading about here. And there are moments like the conquest of Canaan throughout biblical history which all are foreshadowings of God's final judgment. So, you know, Noah and the flood is an example of that. You know, the people had 120 years to, to turn from their violence. And then God came and he judged the earth. And the cleansing of Canaan in the 15th century B.C., the Assyrian invasion of northern Israel in the 8th century B.C., the Babylonian invasion of Judah in the, in the 7th and 6th centuries B.C., the fall of Jerusalem that Jesus foretold that happened in 70 A.D. In all of these stories, God gives people centuries to turn from the evil and turn to them there comes a time when the judgment finally comes. And the Bible says that this is actually true of all human history. The, you know, why is humanity so evil, so broken? It's because we said we want to be our own gods. We were created by God for, to be worshipped and be loved and to be in relationship with him. And we said, no, we want to be our own gods. And that has been the source of all the evil, all the misery, all the darkness in, in human culture and in human history. And so Jesus has come and bore all of our sins on the cross. And now he has given an open time. It's been now 2,000 years. An open offer of all people everywhere to have their sins pardoned. Every last sin can be pardoned and forgiven and welcomed into God's kingdom. And why is it taking so long? You know, some of you are like, why has it been 2,000 years and Jesus hasn't come? Because God is slow to anger. He's patient. He wants people to turn to him and repent. And he's giving more and more time. But eventually the judgment will come. And what this story is telling us is the reality and severity of God's judgment. And we must not take it lightly. And I don't know a gentle way to say this. 
But God did not just kill all the Egyptians. He didn't just kill all the Canaanites. He's going to kill every one of us. You're all going to die. The wages of sin is death. And that curse, not one of us is going to escape. And, uh, and it's not going to be pretty for any of us. And as hard as the conquest of Canaan is for us to read about, it is consistent with the worldview of the Bible. And if you're here and you think, you really believe in a God of wrath? Absolutely. Would God not be angry about many things that happen in our species? I mean, I'll just give you one example. Uh, Sex trafficking is estimated to be a $100 billion industry globally in our species. There are 4 million sex slaves on the globe right now, a million of whom are children. Should God be angry about that? He better be angry about that. Of course he's angry about that. What, What would you think of him if he wasn't angry about that? And the fundamental belief of a Christian is that the thing that is wrong with humanity that rightfully makes God angry is not something out there that bad people have wrong with them. It is something that lives inside of each one of us. The darkness is inside of each of us. And so judgment is an act of God alone. And judgment is absolutely an essential part of the Christian worldview. And we are kidding ourselves if we don't take it seriously. But before I move on to the next question, I want to address one issue. It is true that the conquest of Canaan has been used by religious people throughout history to justify their wars and to act like God is on their side. Actually, just this last week, I was reading a book by Peter Lightheart where he's talking about the Mexican-American War in the 1840s. And he was saying that a lot of that war was inspired by kind of an anti-Catholic spirit. American Protestants were fighting against Mexican uh, Catholics. And this is what Lightheart writes. He says, soldiers wrote back accounts of their firsthand encounters with Mexican Catholics, sometimes comparing them to Canaanites who had to be removed to make way for God's favored people. This has happened many times in history that people take this story and say, you know what, we're the Israelites and the people we hate are the Canaanites. That kind of thinking has absolutely no justification in the Bible. And this is a bigger issue than I have time to like really dive into. I'll just quote one Old Testament scholar. This is how he puts it. The conquest of Canaan was unique to Israel at a particular point in time and was not to be repeated in later history by Israel or by any other nation. Now, you might say, well, people have repeated it. That's fine. The Bible does not endorse that, and they will be judged for it, and God will hold them to account. Vengeance belongs to the Lord alone. So, was this an ethnic cleansing? I don't think there's any way around saying yes. Whole people groups were forcefully and violently removed from their lands. But we have to say this with two crucial qualifiers It is God who is doing this action. He alone has the right to do it, and we don't. And he never judges anyone because of their race, but it's because of their wickedness. And the land itself was crying out against these people for freedom. Now, you might say, okay, I guess it makes sense that God should be angry with the evil in humanity, but isn't he loving also? How does his love square with a passage like this? And of course, The first answer to that is that he is angry because he loves us. Why is God angry about a million child sex slaves in the globe? Because he loves those children. 
His wrath and his love are one. Um, They are not two faces of a one God. But that question leads to our second point. How can we understand these events? The conquest of Canaan. And to answer that, I'd like to address maybe the most difficult aspect of the cleansing of Canaan. Because it appears that God orders not just that the wicked men or soldiers of the Canaanites be killed, but even uh, the women and children. This is Joshua 6, verse 21, says this about the fall of Jericho. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. This is so bloody that I think for many people, this is the part of the cleansing of Canaan that pushes it over the top for them. And we say, how do we understand this? How could we possibly understand? I'm not sure I have all the answers. I'm going to give three answers. The first two are shorter. The third one I think is crucial for our understanding of this passage. Okay? Three answers. First, there is some use of hyperbole, exaggeration in the Bible. You know, when the Bible says devote everything to destruction, it may not be intended to be taken literally. Actually, if you go to uh, Deuteronomy 7, it says in verse 2, devote them to complete destruction. And then in verse 3, it says, but then, and then don't intermarry with any of their women. And you're like, how could we intermarry with any of the women if they were all put to destruction? I thought all the women would be gone. And there's clearly an assumption that there's going to be still people left in the land. And there are other stories in the Bible where it says on one page, these people were put to complete destruction. You read a few pages later that there they are again. And where did they come from? And uh, is the Bible not being honest or accurate by exaggerating? Well, I, I think not necessarily. We use language like this all the time. You know, so for example, if, you know, if I played you in tennis, and then I went and told someone later that I completely destroyed you, you know, would they be like, you completely destroyed them? Like, they don't exist anymore? And it would be like, no, it's not that they don't exist anymore. I just, like, really beat them badly. You know what I mean when I say completely destroy. And so that would have been true in the ancient world, too. They would have read passages like this and understood that this is just trying to say this was a great victory and they really won. So we use language that way. Second, in these cities, there were very few women and children. The Old Testament scholar Paul Copen has pointed out that archaeology has found that the main cities, Jericho and I talked about in the book of Joshua, were military strongholds. He says there is no archaeological evidence of civilian populations at Jericho and I. That means that even though the Canaanite peoples were driven out, as this passage says in several places, the killing was largely concentrated on military, political, and religious leadership. And the fact that Rahab the prostitute was in Jericho, it means that her and her family were an exception. Um, It is possible that there were very few women and children killed. But even if God put a small number of civilians to death, I think it still raises the question for us, how how can we accept that? How can we embrace that? How can we make sense of that? And this is the third answer, is something that you could call The covenantal structure of reality. There is a covenantal structure to reality. And what I mean by that is that God has made his world so that human lives are tied together. And actually you see it mentioned in verse 32. It says, you shall make no covenant with them and their gods. 
They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. The Lord says, do not tie your life up with the lives of the people in the land. This is the way that we experience human life. Children's lives are tied up with their parents in ways that often feel unfair. I know that for some of you, maybe you were born into a family. You were treated really harshly in your childhood. And you're like, that's had effects on me for years of my life, decades of my life. And I did nothing to deserve that. I didn't ask to be put in that family. I didn't do anything to be put in the family. It was just my life was tied up with these people. That is the way the world is. It is the nature of reality. The lives of the children in Canaan were tied up with their parents. So why would God make a world that operates so unfairly? Well, the first answer to that is that while some of you may have, you know, had the covenant nature of reality has brought undeserved sadness into your life, some of you, the covenant nature of reality has brought undeserved blessing into your life. I mean, maybe you were born into a family where you were loved and you had all kinds of opportunities. You were taught the scriptures and, and you learned new things and, and you were like, I didn't do anything to deserve that. I didn't choose to be put in that family. And that's what God originally intended, that all of our lives would be tied up to one another and that blessing would flee, freely flow through the networks of human life that was tied together. But then the fall of humanity came and we were tied up with our first parents and their curse has now been shared with all of us. They should have shared blessing with us, and they've now shared curse with us. Adam's sin, Adam's alienation from God, Adam's death, Adam's guilt. Before we have done anything, his curse is passed to us. But there's another side to that coin. The Bible says that a second Adam has come, who has come to covenantally tie himself to us. He is, Jesus has tied his life to us. And by being tied up, that means he got all of our curse on the cross. All of our sin, all of our judgment, all of the wrath came upon him. And he shares with us everything that's his, the love of the Father and his eternal life and the Holy Spirit. And it's not based on anything we've done. Just like being born into your family was not based on anything you did, how unfair. Life and salvation was based on nothing you did. What hope. And just like every riddle in the Bible, the cleansing of Canaan is no different. Jesus is always the answer to the riddle. Because you'll notice, you know, in this passage, there's a strange character who appears in the beginning. If you look at verse 20, it says, Behold, I'm sending an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. Now Christians throughout history have said that this mysterious angel of the Lord, you know, the Lord's name is in him, is Christ himself in the Old Testament, come to visit his people before he was born as a baby over a thousand years later. And what that means is that this angel who would bring this terrifying destruction upon the Canaanites would later himself fall under the wrath of God on the cross. He too would be driven out. He too would be killed. The angel who killed the Canaanites became a Canaanite on the cross. And so why do we trust a God who brings utter destruction to a people group? 
Because mysteriously, that God himself experienced utter destruction and exile on the cross. And everything that happened to the Canaanites happened to Jesus too. And so our God might be strange. He acts in ways that surprise or challenges us. But we know in Jesus that he is good and he is loving. In ways that we can't comprehend, his wrath and his love are one. So as we walk through our Christian life and confront things we don't understand, like this passage, we will trust him. Because our confidence is not in our ability to explain everything God does. You'll never be able to do that. Our confidence is in a person, the person of Jesus Christ, the angel of the Lord, the Son of God, in whom all the riddles of God find their answer. Let's pray together.